I am very happy to introduce a very good friend of mine, a mentor of mine. The stories that we have, they go way back. And this man has been probably the biggest influence of my life, of anybody. If it wasn't for him, I don't know if I would be here or attending Gateway or in church at all. I don't know where I'd be with my career. We've had many a breakfast, many a great time, and I'm really looking forward to the message he's going to bring to us today. So, Mr. Kenton Friesen, can you come join us? Thank you, Josh. It's true, we've been through a lot together. I think that um, life is a neat thing. We get brought people into our lives that we don't necessarily know when we first meet people who um, is going to make a lasting impact, who's going to be someone that's going to be by your side forever. You just don't know these things. And, uh, but God knows. And I think that he sets up divine appointments many times. There was a time that Josh and I shared many years ago, I think 15 years ago, something like that. Josh was basically a baby, a little dude, uh, smaller than me, I think, at the time. (laughs) I'm not sure. It was dark. It was extremely cold. My face was chafed by the wind. It was like, it was raw. We all looked great at the time. I was extremely sore. We had just done a ton of work on a roof, and it was far north of here. But none of that really mattered at this exact moment. What mattered was that I was kneeling at the edge of this roof, and it was wintertime. It was, it was January or February, late January, early February. And I was kneeling on this roof in the dark, and my headlamp, they're not like these 600, 700 lumen type headlamps that we have today. They were like, it was like it it gave enough light to hit my feet, but the ground was a long, 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 long ways down. And my foot was hanging over the edge. And I was trying to work up the courage to get onto the ladder. But I couldn't do it. Now, I'm not afraid of heights at all. I spend my life in heights. I go up and down ladders a thousand times or thousands of times a year. It's what I do. And but this particular time, my heart was beating hard. And I just was trying to swing my leg onto the rung, and I couldn't do it. So I pulled back again. And I sat there, and I prayed, and I maybe also, uh, I tried to work up some courage. And then again, I got to the edge of the roof, and I stuck my leg out, and I was trying to swing it around to the ladder, and I just couldn't do it. And I pulled my leg back. Holding the ladder below me, was a young guy that was basically a baby. And a guy that was alongside of him. Now, Josh, I knew, was going to hold that ladder solidly. The guy beside him wasn't extremely happy with me at the moment. I had asked these guys to do some pretty crazy things in the last week or two, and he felt like I was being somewhat unfair. And he wasn't really happy to be there. And these were the thoughts that were going through my mind. I'm like, if I swing down onto this ladder, these guys have to hold it because without them holding it, I'm dropping away. There's, there's, no, there's no plan B. 
And I knew that Josh would do his part, but I really needed both of them to be on board. Josh will give you a little bit of a, of a scenario of what he felt like down below. Well, it was a pitch of night. We were desperate to get home. And Kenton came up with this thing. So when, you, when you're roofing an apartment building, this thing's five stories high, and you access it through the roof sheeting. You, through the attic, you get up through the middle, like near the ridge, the center of the roof. It's not like when we do a residential roof where you lean a ladder up on the gutter. Well, it's 50 feet high. You can't do that. You have to access it from up top. But it's the middle of the night. We're all desperate to get home. And Kenton, I told Kenton, I was like, man, we got to come back tomorrow and deal with this. He's like, no, we're going home. <laughs> and uh, I was like, how? There's shite shut down. There's man lifts there. None of us know how to run them, and they're probably all keyed out. And sure enough, on the fourth floor, they were framing in the balconies, and the balcony came out just to the edge of the roof. And I mean, when have you ever walked up a ladder that's just a little bit too steep, and you can feel it kind of doing that to you? Well, this ladder, I kid you not, we pounded boards into the deck, and we were holding this ladder, and it was literally straight up and down with the feet right on the edge. Not in a million years would I get on a ladder in that scenario. But Kenton sent us down. He's like, you guys, you guys will have me. You'll make it work. So feeling the same feelings about our coworker at the same time, myself and this individual, we set up this ladder and I've, I don't know if I've ever had an I was just the one holding the ladder, and I don't know if I've ever had an adrenaline rush just like that. It's a weird feeling to literally be holding someone's life in your hands. And we've got this ladder, and we're holding it, and I see this foot just whoop, out from the roof and go back. A few minutes later, whoop, and it goes back. And I'm praying. Kenton, I know, is praying. And it was, because down below, you couldn't even see the ground. It was just the black abyss <laughs> that but sure enough this brave soul finally swung that foot down we held onto it with all our might we caught him and pulled him onto the deck it was definitely one of the craziest memories I've and here I am in like minus 20 in February thinking you know geez a year ago I just graduated school and I was pushing buggies in the Walmart parking lot is this what life's really like is this what it's like to be an adult <laughs> Kenton was such a great example to me. <laughs> it was the third time, and I swung around. I got onto the ladder, and once I was on, I was like, okay, well, then you're committed. And the guys held, got onto the deck, and we celebrated, I think, half the way home. <laughs> it was great. It was a great time. So. Thanks, Josh. And you know, I have to say, like, that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. And, and the stuff that, that God has taken Josh and I through together, I mean, we're not in the same age category. We're kind of almost in different generations. But it's just been an amazing walk. And we've loved it. And uh, we have no idea what comes next, but it's great. Thank you, oh, Josh. When I say, like, Kenton's my mentor, I mean, through business, we've worked on and off with each other. And, you know, it's those kinds of situations that really, you know, I feel like I knew Kenton really well and he was such a great example to me as to what it was to have a, a killer work ethic and really get through life so you know if you don't have one already find a mentor like Kenton because we'll make your life better I promise thanks Josh
So this morning, I get to talk about hope. And I have a subtitle. It's called, Who's Holding Your Ladder? My desire is that this will be more of a discussion between me and you rather than a monologue. Here's the problem with monologues is that you can't push back and you hear what one person has to say and you don't actually, there's not a lot of feedback. It's really hard to do that in this present scenario when we're talking through cameras and you're sitting in your living room. But my prayer is that you will feel like we're talking, that you'll feel like we're having a discourse. Do you know that churches back in the day when the preachers or the priests were more into pontification and telling you exactly what's right and wrong um, and not necessarily always through a state of humility, the churches were built very long and narrow. And do you know that now, most of the churches that we belong to, the community-type churches, they're built wide and shallow. And the reason is, and it's not a mistake, it's not like something just arbitrary. It's very well designed because the objective these days is to give the word of God to you, but in a way that it is a discourse that we're discussing, and that there is a chance that some of the things I say you may disagree with, and that's okay. There's a chance that some of the things that I say today I might disagree with two years from now, and that's okay. It's a discourse. We're learning to know the heart of the Father together. We're seeking to understand his heart. We're seeking to understand who he is and what he has for us. And so my hope is, is that this will be a time when I can speak hope into your hearts and that you feel like we're having this discussion of what it looks like to have hope regardless of the circumstances around us. David J. Bosch is a, or was, a theologian historian, and he made some observations about the difference that we see in our culture today versus back in the medieval days. In the medieval days, there was a hierarchy that looked like this. You had God, then you had the government, and then you had the church, and then you had family, then you had yourself, and then you had objects, plants, and animals. So, again, I'll run it down really quickly. It's God, government, church, family, yourself, objects, plants, and animals. That was the medieval days. I'm not saying that I agree with this, but it's just sometimes it's neat to take a look back into history and see how our minds have changed, how culture has changed, and what are some of the factors that are shaping the way that we think, um, whether we're in or outside of the church. I think there's often there's cultural things that, that shift, that change how we think about things. Today, God, in our broader culture, has been taken off of that list. The government, for the most part, has been taken off of that list. The church has, for the most part, been taken off of that list. The family, as well, has been taken off of that list. And what are we left with? We're left with self and objects and plants and animals. And if you think about the discourse, the public discourse that goes on these days, it's not super hard to realize that most of it centers on self or abstractions like objects, plants, and animals. These are the things that we get all fired up about. These are the things that we stand for often as a culture. We hear things like, well, this is my truth. 
That wasn't a thing in the medieval days. You didn't get the privilege of having your own truth in the medieval days. It was the truth of God, the truth of the government, the truth of the church and of your family, not of yourself. We We hear people talk about true north, and I remember when my kids were young, and I was explaining to one of my buddies who didn't have kids, about some of the different principles and the different ways that we were raising our kids. And as we were talking, he's a, he's a really intelligent, great friend of mine, and as we were talking, he's like, so basically what you're telling me is that you want your kids to be true to themselves. And I was like, and I'd never been asked that question before. And I kind of hesitated for a moment. I'm like, no, actually, that's not what I'm saying. It may sound like that's what I'm saying, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I'm trusting that God will teach my kids to be true to who he made them. I think this is a major distinction. It's not about us deciding our own destiny. Here's what I believe. Is that, just like Josh was saying, we are finite. And the problem is, when we set ourselves at the top of our hierarchy, here's the problem. Is that the further we go in life, the more we recognize what we don't know the more we realize how inadequate we are in so many different situations, the more it becomes clear that we don't have hope within ourselves. So the problem is, if we're hit with challenges in life, and we only have our own self to rely on, we don't even have family, leave alone church, leave alone God to look to. If we don't even have the family structure around us, do you know that there are so many people right now choosing to be independent, to not get married, to not have kids, complete independence. And you know what? It sounds fun. It sounds like, man, you can do whatever you want. I've got a guy that works with me right now. He's got a little son that just was born a couple months ago. He was woken up every two hours um, just the last night. And that's just reality for him. And, and so there's, there's a challenge that comes with that. There is a, a mess that comes with that. There is, I mean, just being married alone, it, it, it requires dying to self. It really does. And if you, if you want to have yourself at the top of your hierarchy, you may get married, but if it doesn't all of a sudden work out for you, guess what you do? You say this is a hopeless relationship and you step out because you are on the throne of your life. So when we're talking about hope, If you are the only one holding your own ladder, guess what? In that case, well, I guess I would have spent a night on a roof perhaps, but in the case up there, I couldn't hold my own ladder. I had to have somebody holding my ladder for me, and without that, there's no way that I could swing out and get down to where I needed to go. There's just no way. It would have been a hopeless situation. It looks fun. It looks, it looks like it's so liberating to only have yourself to answer to. But the truth is that we need community. We need each other. And these days when we can only stare at each other through a screen often, these are days when I think we all recognize to a, to a greater extent how valuable it is to see people with skin on, to be able to communicate the love and the hope of Christ face to face. And so here's the thing that we are encouraging as a church, and I want to I just make this statement again, is that When you have the opportunity, when there are people in front of you, take them as opportunities to spread hope and joy and love and make sure that the people around you these days, even if there's only a few, even if you've limited yourself to a very small, small community, take the time to share the hope and the love of Christ. This is what we are. Hold somebody's ladder for them. It's okay to hold somebody's ladder. The thing is, 
that we need hope. Do you know, it's not, hope is not as great as love or faith. We know that from 1 Corinthians 13. But it's still one of the big three. It's still one of the things that shapes our world. And the lie is, when you're in a challenging situation, the lie is that nothing is ever going to change. And if it does change, it's just going to get worse. This is just how it is. I've always been this way. I've always had this, this issue. I've always had these hang-ups. I've made this mistake again and again, and it's just who I am, and it's just how it is. And this is the lie that we're told day after day, if we're willing to listen to it, it's there. It's speaking in our minds. We have this insecurity. We have this fear. We have this hang-up. We have these things that we just can't conquer. And so we just accept it and say, There's, this is just never going to change. And slowly, the hope dies within us. I want to look at a few stories from Scripture. I'm not going to dig super deep into the stories, but I am going to pull out... I, you know, sometimes it's fun to read the Scripture and to just look for something. To look at different stories in the Scripture and just look for one attribute. And so when, when, you're, when you're building a sermon, you do that quite naturally, right? So we get the privilege every once in a while, those of us who get the chance, to, to build something around an idea or a concept. And so you get to read Scripture through those eyes. And it's fun to read some of these stories just in, and looking at where was hope in this story? How does it look? Where are the threads of hope? I want to look at Job. And, and these are all stories that we know. So these aren't like any, any uh, super vague stories. These are stories that we know. I'm just looking at them from, from an aspect of hope and how it influenced the story. Job was a man of posture and distinction. He's probably, and, and there's, there's some debate with historians as far as whether Job was the first um, book of the Bible, whether he was like the earliest guy that was basically um, talked about to this depth or not. But he was, it's, he, he was a very ancient character. He had a ton of posture. He had a ton of discipline. He was a guy that got things done. He understood what blessing was. He understood how to operate in blessing. And he blessed a lot of people. He, he was a family man. He had, there was really not a lot of negative things said about his lifestyle and who he was. He was a careful man, loved God, honored him, and prospered in everything that he did. Without going into tons of detail about what happened, there was a discussion in the spiritual realm. God allowed Satan to attack him and to see if basically he could break him. And, and which, is, which is still a weird thing to me because it's like, I'm like, I wouldn't want to be that guy. I wouldn't want to have that kind of attention. I mean, I know that the spiritual world is, is, is really more real than the physical, but that idea of having God say, yeah, just go at him and see how he can take it. I'm like, God, man, I, please. But, but this is what happened to Job. And so in the course of a, a number of days, he pretty much, he lost cattle and, and camels and he lost everything right up to his kids. All of a sudden, like his kids were wiped out and here's a guy that loved his family and, and he's left, his, his wife is alive, but she's telling him to curse God and die and, and he's basically destitute. He has some guys that come and visit him and, and so basically the book is filled with this discussion between these friends of Job and Job and then later in the book, between Job and God. The interesting thing is, despite the fact that he lost everything, and in the end, he was, he was well, not in the end, but the end of his, his losing, he also was sitting in pain and with boils all over him, and he was like 
rubbing himself with clay, with shards of clay and trying to find comfort. Despite all of that, he was a fighter by nature. And if you read through the book of Job, you'll hear phrases of him sounding like he's become hopeless. But then a few phrases later, he'll say stuff like, like in Job 19.24, he says, Still I know that God lives, the one who gives me back my life. There was this discipline in him that wouldn't allow him to let go of God. And actually, he, he, there was times when he's almost borderline rude in his discussion with God. He's like, God, you, you are not living up to your character with me. You're not defending me the way that I expect you to defend me. And so, but he did not, and you can, you can feel the tension in him, and you can feel the fact that he would not give up on hope. In the end, he was given back more than he ever had before, and his story ends kind of almost like, I don't know if Hollywood took, a, took his script and repeated it many times, but it's kind of, it ends in a way that makes you feel really good. But the fact is, is that this guy never let, let go of hope in some of the most aggressively dark situations that we could expect ourselves to ever be in. He knew that God was holding his ladder. He was convinced of that. And there was times which he was struggling with it because of the desperation of his situation, but he knew that God was holding his ladder. If we go forward into the New Testament, or sorry, one more example from the Old Testament. Uh, there was a lady named Hannah, and this is in, comes from 1 Samuel 1. And she wanted to have a kid desperately. And in those days, not having a kid was a big deal. And so she was crying to God for a kid. Her, she was getting teased for not having a kid. Like, this is the interesting thing, right? Like, sometimes if, if life is challenging, and then you can have people that are close to you, some of the closest people to you, like, rub it in. And we can do that in jest. And I think I always say on the construction, when we're working in construction, if you're not getting teased, you're probably you're probably not part of the team the way that you should be. So, like, rubbing things in on the construction site is pretty normal. We try to keep it within reason, but it's pretty normal. But there's situations in life, and particularly when a woman can't have a kid, like, that's not something to rub in, in my mind. It's, it's not cool. But she was in this place where in 1 Samuel 1.15, she says, I'm a woman with a despairing spirit. So here you have someone who really loves God, who really believes in him, but when she's looking over the edge and into the dark, she's really not sure if God has got her ladder. The thing that matters most to her, the thing that she's been crying out to him for, is not happening. To the point where she's in the temple, and she's praying so hard that the priest thinks that she's drunk. She was desperate and despairing. And it, it interests me that God includes these kind of stories in Scripture. And I think he does it because when we're in that place where we're desperate and despairing and we've said we've been crying for this forever and not only are we not getting it, we're, we're being chastised by people or put down because we aren't, we aren't walking in the blessing of God. I think that these stories are there so that we realize that we can't forget that God is holding our ladder, that there is hope. And in the story of Hannah, she does, God does answer her prayer and give her a son, whom she then calls Samuel and gives back to God to serve him. In the New Testament, I want to turn to Luke chapter 8. Interestingly, Luke was a doctor and the only Gentile writer in Scripture, which is kind of an interesting note. 
Um, he wasn't a Jew. And not only that, he actually wrote more words in the Bible than anybody else, which is kind of interesting. It's something that, because he wrote Luke and Acts. And Luke and Acts actually back in the day were one book and then they divided them up so that they could put John in between. Just some back Bible trivia for you. Um, he writes from a doctor's perspective. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 8. And I read from King James, and I apologize. I'm old. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching, and this is Jesus, and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene. Just one second. You know what? I'm gonna, that'd be a real long reading. I'm going, to skip through, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit to verse 43. That would have been, you'd have been here for a bit. And a woman, having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind Jesus and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood was healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and, and you're saying, who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody has touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Here's a lady that we know her story, and she was looking for help, and she wanted someone to hold her ladder because this is not something that she could do on her own. She recognized that. She had an issue, a health problem, and she had exhausted every, every physical thing that she could exhaust to try to get this solved. And, and it's interesting that We often do this. We often will try every solution before we finally fall at the feet of Jesus in desperation. She's trembling. And I think it has something to do with, you know, Pastor Kimmy last week was talking about how that, that God has made us in such a way that he loves us and he's given us, he's, given, he's willing and wants to give us good things. And sometimes I think that we don't realize, and so our hope diminishes even before we've gone to the one who gives hope. And her hope was diminishing. And this was like, you know, there's, there's kind of two different ways to look at this. On the, one, on the one hand, it looks like tremendous faith, right? It kind of does. It looks like tremendous faith, and I think it is. There is that aspect of it, but I think that many things aren't just that simple. I think that often mixed with tremendous faith is tremendous fear is tremendous, like, self-doubt. These are things that, you know, life is not so clean-cut as we often try to make it. I believe that we can have faith on the one hand and still a lot of doubt on the other and wonder, if I go to him, am I actually worthy of him paying attention to me and answering my prayer and fulfilling that deep desire that, and need that I have? And so she has this faith, but at the same token, she doesn't want to attract his attention. And she's hoping that if she just touches his garment, 
that she's going to be healed and she'll be able to live a natural, healthy, and good life. And I mean, I, I think it's interesting because, because Christ doesn't let that go by. He, he realizes what happens and calls her out. And you can see her fear and her trembling, but also her joy that there was hope. There was hope for her. She wasn't left destitute. The last story that I want to talk about is in John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came with him, and he sat down and taught them. So this is a great scene. This is at the time when he's got quite a following, and the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to find a way to trap him. So in verse 3, it says, The scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman taken in adultery, and, and, and this is the weird thing, right? Like, here's a guy teaching. It's pretty, like, quiet. People are listening. They're, I, I would imagine, fairly respectful. And all of a sudden, these guys just, like, drag in this woman. And, and she's, she's obviously in a shameful position, and she's in also a very hopeless position. And when they had set her in, the, in their midst, they say to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's, here's a lady that clearly had already found her marriage hopeless in one way or another. Probably found most of the relationships around her to be hopeless. And was seeking some kind of recognition or some kind of self-satisfaction in a way that, that wasn't appropriate. And I'm sure that she was very well aware of that. Not only was it not appropriate, but in that day and age, if you got caught, I mean, you didn't just lose your marriage, you lost your life. And so hope wasn't on the radar screen for this lady. And I, I liked, in my analogy of the ladder, I like to say that she didn't even, she, didn't, she wasn't just missing a ladder holder, she was missing a ladder. Like, there was nothing there for her. She was in a place of hopelessness. She was in a place that tomorrow looked worse than today. And when she gets dragged in to be made an example of, to trap someone, she was just being used, even in that situation, only being used as a pawn. She was in a very, very vulnerable place. And her hope, I don't think, was existent for a very long time before this. And at this point, there was nothing but a black hole where hope should be. And I think this story impacts us because Christ is not so concerned about the trap that's being laid for him. What he's concerned about is the lady that's been pulled in in front of him and being made to be used as a pawn. And so he doesn't even give the scribes and Pharisees the satisfaction of an argument or a fight. 
He doesn't even try to defend her or try to show some kind of cunning. He just quietly bends down and starts writing in the dust. And I don't know how long he wrote, but I think it was significant. He wasn't panicked. He wasn't hurried. And then when he does speak, it's very little that he says, but you know that each word that he says all of a sudden ignites something in this lady's heart that she hasn't felt for a long time. All of a sudden, there's a glimmer and a flicker of hope. You do not get that kind of hope from searching inside yourself and knowing yourself and your own desires. That hope does not come from you finding your own true north. That hope comes in understanding that our creator is the lover of our souls. And he will not let us go destitute when we turn our face to him. This lady didn't even come to him of her own volition. She came because she was hauled in in front of him. And that was still good enough for him to look at her with compassion and to give her hope with each word that he said. You think that you're beyond hope right now? You think that the things around you can't change? We have a God that with each word that he speaks to us can speak hope into our situation in a way that brings life to us that we don't deserve in our own and in our, of ourselves. But we are, we, the blood of Christ, like we had communion today, the blood of Christ washes our sins away and, and gives us this hope, not just for a future, but for today. This lady had no hope. She had no ladder holder, not even a ladder, but Christ formed a ladder from the dust of the ground. He extended it up to her. He held it secure for her to reach safety. And then he extended the grace for her to continue. He says, you go and don't sin anymore. And guess what changed in her life that day? We don't know for sure that she followed him after that, but I'm pretty sure she did. Because all of a sudden, this lady that didn't have hope had hope again. My prayer is that these are days when hope is a very real thing in your heart. You know, I listen to a lot of smart people on different podcasts that I listen to. I talk to a lot of great and smart people around here. Nobody knows what tomorrow holds right now. And if you feel like, man, I feel like I'm in the dark, well, guess what? Our headlamps right now aren't showing us very far ahead. And you know what? Sometimes I think that's great medicine for us. I, I had a buddy recently that I talked to, and I love him. And he's just like, man, I, I'm making plans this way if this happens and that way if that happens. And he's like, so what plans are you making? And I'm like, not a lot right now. The plans that I'm making are pretty simple. And that is that tomorrow I'm going to get up, and I'm going to do my best to be a servant of God and to show love and hope and vitality to the people around me. And the day after that, I don't know. I think that we're in a place where we can follow God one step at a time and he's given us hope and extending a light to our path one step at a time. And you know what? That's enough sometimes. It's enough. And if you're in that place of desperation like the lady that we just read about and you think, yeah, but that just doesn't work for me. I haven't seen hope in a long, long while. Just turn your face to Christ and ask him, to give you hope. And I assure you, 
that things can happen that you'll never expect. But the biggest thing that happens is there's a change deep inside our souls when we realize that we have a future, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back on up. I'm just going to pray that you, uh, that if you're a person of hope, that you'll be able to spread hope this week. And if you're a person of hopelessness, that you will have heard some things in this message that will give you hope and that will ignite something in your heart. God, we just ask right now for each person in every place that they're listening to this message, God, that there would be a spark of hope, that there would be some joy, that you would reignite some feelings maybe from, from their youth when they, when they believed with a childlike faith that the next day was going to be better than today, when there were dreams that were alive. Jesus, that you would, you would help people to not be focused on the things that we can't control, but be focused on the fact that you are in control and that you give us hope for tomorrow and that in that hope we can have joy We can feel your love. We give you glory for that, God. Take these seeds and these words, God, and make something beautiful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.